Hello, and welcome to the Nauticast podcast, the one true chapter by chapter podcast going through a song of ice and fire one chapter a week. I'm one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Brenda Beefish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to the 124th episode of the Nauticast titled The Third Wish Part one, an analysis of A Clash of Kings, Aria 9, in which Arya Stark witnesses some quote-unquote prisoners arriving at Harrenhal before staring down her magical mentor, Jackanagar, and making her third wish. With zero unintended consequences. So, as you heard from Jeff, this is again going to be one of our two-parters. We swear we don't do this just to torment people. This, these chapters are huge. And this one in particular, there's just so much goes on in it. And we just wanted to have as much time to spend with as possible with our, our guest for this two-parter. And please welcome to the Nauticast, our very own Hand of the King, Wolfman Zack. Thanks for having me, fellas. How are you guys doing tonight? Terrific. All the better for having you here. Yeah, we're really pleased to have you on. And as always, this episode is brought to you by our not-a-small council, our Hand of the King, Wolfman Zack. Who could that be? Grand Maester Tim Bob, troubleshoot- troubleshooters of systems and designer of circuit boards. Lord Commander of the Kingsguard, Mark N. Lord Travis, Master of Ships and Word of the Waves. Captain of the War Galley Nightwolf, the ship that stalks the seven seas and wielder of the Valyrian Steel Trident Summoner, the blade that brings the Deep Ones. Sir Keith J., Master of Whispers. Lord Philip the Merciful, Master of Laws. Arch Mr. June, Heal of the Lesser Poxes. Ragged Michael, Word of the North, Nelson the Hammer, Prince of Dragonstone, Scarlet the Other Rebelman, and Mistress of Whispers. Lord Micah, the Quilled Lion, War in the West, Harold the Golden Tooth, Master of the Bane Fort, and the Kraken's Bane. Lord James, the Gym That Was Promised, the High Bearded Priest. Lord Jacob Sisson, to the Hand of the King, Lady Zine of Lyrium, Sir Jack, Lord of Sir Arthur Dane, and Prince Rhaegar Targaryen's Sad Prophecy Boys Club. His Grace's High Inquisitor, Sir Frank B., Sir Jasper the Cruel, the King's Justice, Lawrence, Prince of Dorne, Kelly, Warren the East and Mistress of Old Bay of Crabs, Stephen the Steadfast, Master of Hounds, Blue, the Blue Winter Rose, Knight of Highgarden, Lady Stephanie, Lord Adamus, Lord Carlos, Lord Andrew the Restless, the Priest of the Drowned God, the King's Cook, Noli Oli, Master of Cannoli, Sir Sorcedelica, Prince Matthew of House Targaryen, Proud Soy Boy of Summerhall, Defender of the Fifth Book, and Swing Dancer with Dragons, the Artist, formerly known as Sir K.W. Dent, L.C. the Blackwood Guard, and Batman of the Seven Kingdoms, who is now known as Low as Low as Low Energy Dent, Lord Pencha for Nostalgia, Queer Alias Rainbow Commander of the Thades and Gentle Thems, Lord Quint Esquire, Master, Master of Absolutely Possibly, not serving as a spy for several unnamed High Lords and Ladies in order to further the secret Blackfire style conspiracy to overthrow the oppressive Small Council. Haldor, the waiter for Tiwau, A.A. Ron, Damp Hair, Prophet of the Forsaken, and High Priest of Euron Crozai, Lieutenant Glenn, Lord of H-Town, Veneris of House Colgarian, the first of her name, Princess of Dragonstone, Mistress of Art, the Overwork, Queen of the Pencils, the Eraser, the First Draft, the Queen of Monochrome, Devotee of the Great Game of Thrones, Pushes the Realm, Lord Lady Realist of the Seven Kingdoms, Blender Paints, and Maker of Drawings. Lord Adam T, Lady Alexander of Tarth, Sir Christoph Logos, Bloody Scorpion of the Redfield, Defender of the Letter of Kin, and the Wolverine of House Corgol. Lady Elizabeth, Mistress of Horse-Faced Lesbians. Sir Josh Snow, Bastard Bounty Hunter of the North. Surveyor, Chief of Paris in the Frozen Wastes. Lord Peter, Lady Ashley, the Dead Shepherd Reborn, Preacher of the Poor Fellows. Marshall Harrison, Absent, Still Shipwrecked in the Jade Sea. Grave Rob Stark, the Cadaver King and Horror of Harrenhal. Olaf, pro- proponent of establishing a feudal pseudo-democratic system of great councils wherein every count votes. Sir Tim, the Knight Who Was Guided by Voices. Lord Nick, Thucydides, Lord of Plagues, Sir Jack, Lord of Sir Arthur Dana, Prince Rhaegar Targaryen, Sad Prophecy Boys Club, Lord Jean the Splendid, Master of Coin, Ward of Tampa Bay, who believes that the sudden vacation plans made by certain witnesses clears him of all charges, Lady Anna, the lovely Castellan, Pat Ironwood, the Blood Royal and Guardian of the Boneway, 
Lord Charles Tyrell of House of Highgarden, Lord Paramount of the Commander, Defender of the Marshes, High Marshal of the Reach, Ward of the South, and the Heir of House Tyrell. Luke, Lord of Loneleaf and the Pillar of Autumn, Squid Pro Quo, and Master of Zorse. Thank you to our not-a-small counselors very much. Thank you to our counselors as always. And our spoiling, as we see in all episodes, we'll potentially be talking about all published books. That is the five novels, the first, the, that's the five novels, the three Duncan Ignavos, histories, interviews, the Windsor sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones, a TV show. Anything and everything. Our question this week comes from Sir Manu of The Many Names, a sworn sword patron, who asks, more of a personal A Song of Ice and Fire question. As you enter the back half of A Clash of Kings, the threat of Theon, quote-unquote, killing Bran and Rickon... And the grief and sadness that follows to the end of the book reveal that he's alive was something that hit me hard my first time reading the books, not knowing how Martin plays with cliffhangers and thinking killing characters was his M.O. as a first-time reader. Is there something specifically from your first time reading the books outside of Sept of Baylor, Ned's Execution, The Red Wedding, etc., that has stuck with you like that? That's a terrific question. So what do you think, Jeff? What's, uh, what's something that, that really hit you hard emotionally the first time through, besides the obvious Ned's Execution Red <laughs> Wedding choices? Can't pick those. I, I was thinking about this and the thing that hit me and, and I should have known better when I first read the books because so I I I'd seen the first two seasons of the show. So I knew basically what happened at the end of the Battle of Blackwater and what happened at the end of A Clash of Kings by and large. The thing that hit me is when I read A Storm of Swords was when after the Red Wedding chapter, which, which was just absolutely devastating. And I'll tell that story at some point down the road. But the the next chapter after that is immediately an Arya chapter. And the Arya chapter has her going up to the twins and attempting to gain entry into the twins itself. And then finding, oh, no, she can't gain entry. And oh, no, everyone's trying to kill everyone else. And then also Sandra Clegane starts fighting with the phrase outside of the twins. And then, of course, the very end of the chapter. And it's the shortest chapter, I think, in all of A Song of Ice and Fire. But you have the axe that comes for Arya's head. And I was like, oh, you've got to be fucking kidding me. George R. R. Martin just killed Arya Stark after he killed Rob, after he killed Catelyn, who has only done one thing wrong in her entire life, after he killed Daisy Bormont, for fuck's sake. Like, this is just, like, ridiculous. I don't really want to, like, live through, uh, live anymore after this, this moment in the story. So I think that was something that just really hit me hard. And then we pick up with Arya Stark's chapter, which I think is, like, two or 300 pages after this event from the Red Wedding. And I'm like, oh my God, Arya Stark is actually alive. Uh, the other thing that also hit me as well is that after season two, we see that Davos Seaworth has you know, blown up and has been blown off his ship. And I assumed he was dead. And come a storm of swords and finding that he has POV chapters, I was like, oh, Davos is alive. I guess that's cool, right? We get more uh, more Stannis. And I wasn't really a Stannerman at that point in the uh, in my journey in the Song of Ice and Fire fandom, but I was uh, a fan of Davos Seaworth because who wouldn't be a fan of Davos, even, even if you're not a, a big fan of, of, of Stannis Baratheon? So uh, that was a moment where I was like, oh, this is this is something that I, I really feel strongly that was a cliffhanger from, from the end of a, a Clash of Kings and the end of season two, that I was thrilled that actually Arya and Davos were alive by the end of uh, by the start of A Storm of Swords and by the two-thirds of the way through A Storm of Swords. Zach, what did you think? What were some moments that you hit you hard in your first time reading it and uh, kind of like stuck you like the way that Manu was talking about? Called Drogo. I, I, I came to the show, uh, I came to the books through the show. Thank my wife for that. She introduced me to the show when we were first dating and that's the the flap of the butterfly wings that brought us here tonight. And, and for whatever reason, just, I don't know if it was Jason Momoa's performance or... Um, just the way it was in the story, I just like really wasn't expecting him to go at all. Yeah, I think it's the same episode as Baylor that that he goes down, and so then the whole Miri Mazdor aspect, like I really just had no idea which way it was going to go. And then even when he kind of does come back, I'm 
I'm almost like there with Danny still holding on to maybe it's going to be okay, man. Uh, you know, and, and obviously that didn't work out. And then uh, the other one really being uh, with Theon in general, just kind of how he, uh, you know, fucks off for a while. And then I kind of the course of the books and catching up, uh, you know, I try to catch up between seasons two and three, uh, you know, familiar story. Uh, read all the books in that time. And so, you know, I was trying to figure out what's going on with Theon and he just kind of falls off the page and, and then when he comes back and you realize what's going on with him, that to me was just like, whoa, 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 whoa. Pump the brakes, you know? Yeah, those are terrific choices on, on both your parts. I, you know, I, I think for me, uh, Beric and Thoros hit really hard emotionally my first time through A Storm of Swords in a way I wasn't expecting. Because you hear about them a bunch, well, I hear about Beric especially, a bunch throughout A Clash of Kings. And then, but then the legend is so much weirder and scarier and sadder than you could possibly have anticipated. And it's just, and obviously we'll talk much more about this when we get to him proper in Storm of Swords, in which we hope to have Zach back for that. But like, Beric is this, this, this sadness of like, oh, you kind of should be the protagonist of this story, shouldn't you? Because you're actually doing the thing that everyone else isn't doing and you're, you're putting magical power to the service of the people. But it's all kind of for nothing, and you realize that as it's happening, and then it's, and he's just gone, and that that uh that just kind of wealth of storytelling where you see just like at a distance something that could be an entirely different angle for the story. This this you know resurrected hero fighting a battle for the people, and it's just a subplot. There's something just so brilliant about that 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 really always really haunted me. Yeah, I agree. I think that there, there's something to, to be said about how Beric Dondarrion, when he actually returns to the narrative in his Storm of Swords, and, and I just love the way that, that he's built up, as we've been discussing in previous Arya chapters, like the legend of Beric Dondarrion is built up in readers' minds. And then when he's actually there, you're like, oh, this is going to be the hero of the story. And you like see this like sad, broken man who doesn't have, has one eye and his skin is all gray and everything like that. And yet he's still like fighting for the good. And Leading this band of of you know Robin Hood as Mary and his Merry Men esque in, in a Song of Ice and Fire context, which of course is fucking horrifying for for Barrett because he he he's died and come back so many times he really doesn't want to actually like live anymore. It's just like it, it's really sad. It, it it hits me really well. Like when he's talking with Thoros about it, he's asking if Thoros is his mother and like he wonders if like he he thinks back to his time and he's like, I, I was supposed to marry a woman. I had a castle in the marches at one point in time. And you know, who, who am I anymore? Are you my mother, Beric? And are you, are you my mother, Thoros? And was I born with like ashes in my mouth and that sort of stuff. So I, it hits me emotionally too. And so all, all, all those are excellent choices of both you gentlemen. So I, I appreciate that. Thank you so much, uh, Manu, for the question. We hope to see you back here uh, on the Not a Cast soon, maybe before the end of A Clash of Kings. If you'd like to ask us questions here on the Not a Cast podcast, you're welcome to become a Sworn Sword or higher level patron over at patreon.com slash notacastasoiaf, where you can get show notes, access to the Not a Slack at our two highest tiers, monthly Fever Dream chapter-by-chapter episodes, and of course, bonus A Song of Ice and Fire slash pop culture episodes like are recently released, if you're listening on the release day. Part four of the second coming, our five-part analysis of the Winds of Winter chapter, The Forsaken. Mm, and part four was really, really good. So I really appreciate a lot of the insights that Emma was offering there. And if you are not a patron subscriber, check our regular podcast feed as we release part one of the second coming as a Patreon sample for 
everyone, anyone, and everyone, everything, everyone, whatever. Hope you all have enjoyed that if you guys have not listened to that already. And if you like what you hear, please consider becoming a patron again at patreon.com forward slash notacast A-S-O-I-F. And finally, for that Patreon, our next stretch goal is to do a full analysis of George R. R. Martin's 1998 novella, The Hedge Knight, featuring a certain dunk, the lunk. Be there or be square. But enough about Patreon. When we last checked in with Arya, she had used her second wish against Weeze as Tywin Lannister rode out from Harrenhal. Let's find out what happens in Tywin's wake in this synopsis of A Clash of Kings, Arya 9, Part 1. There's ghosts! I know there is! Hot Pie was kneading bread, his arms flowered up to his elbows. Pia saw something in the buttery last night. Arya Bronx cheers Pia's notions. Besides, the ghosts she sees, that is Pia sees, are usually dudes. So weird that. She asks for a tart, but Hot Pie says that Amory wants the whole tray. Fine, how about we spit on those tarts? Hot Pie looks around and is like, no, Amory will know. Arya responds that no, he wouldn't. Spit doesn't taste like anything. Fact check, it really depends on what you're dipping. If he does, it'll be me they whip. Hot Pie stopped his kneading. You shouldn't even be here. It's the black of night. It was, but Arya never minded. Even in the black of night, the kitchens were never still. There was always someone rolling dough for the morning bread, stirring a kettle with a long wooden spoon, or butchering a hog for Samory's breakfast bacon. Tonight, it was hot pie. Hot pie warns Arya that Pink Eye will have a thing or two to say if he finds her gone, but Arya waves him off. Pink Eye, you see, was actually named Web- was actually named Mebel. Why? <laughs> I, I don't know. We're in a slew of a Clash Kings chapters where parents are giving children shitty, shitty names. You can't, you guys can't name your boys like Bill or Sam or Ned or any other name besides Mebel or Warlike. God, parents in those days. Mebel had gotten the nickname Pink Eye from his runny eyes and he was always falling into a deep sleep after he would get good and drunk, after a drinking all day long. Arya would wait for him to pass out and then move out silently up the stairs and through the darkness just like Sirio had taught her. I bet we could escape, and Pink Eye wouldn't even notice if I was gone, Arya told Hot Pie. I don't want to escape. It's better here than it was in them woods. I don't want to eat no worms. Here, sprinkle some flour on the board. Arya cocked her head. What's that? What? I don't... Listen with your ears, not your mouth. That was a war horn. Two blasts. Didn't you hear? And there, that's the portcullis chains. Someone's going out or coming in. Want to go see? The gates of Harrenhal had not been opened since the morning Lord Tywin had marched with his host. Hot Pie says, eh, no thanks, he's making bread. He's not about the dark the way Arya is. Arya asks if she could maybe have a tart as a treat. Hot Pie says, no, but she steals one anyways, eating it as she runs out, admiring the nut, fruit, cheese taste, and the flaky texture, and singing herself that she's the ghost of Harrenhal. Outside, men wake from sleep and come into the courtyard, and Arya falls into the gaggle. She sees carts rumbling through the portcullis and even sees a bear coming through the gate. She realizes that these are the fucking bloody mummers, just the fucking worst, and she retreats into the shadows. Arya sees more of the ordinary and also the extraordinary. Carts full of food and treasure and two zorses. She'd like to have some roast pork now, and she thinks about eating that right at this moment. And then she sees a prisoner. She realizes he she realizes that he's a lord given how he holds his head. I guess he's not bowing it, and she sees Bale under his torn red surcoat. Arya thinks this man is a man uh, is a Lannister, but then she sees that his hands are tied with rope. Then she sees a column of prisoners marching in quite literal lockstep with one another. She tried to judge how many prisoners there were, but lost count before she got to 50. There were twice that many at least. Their clothing was stained with mud and blood, and, and, 
and in the torchlight, it was hard to make out all their badges and sigils. But some of those are a glimpse she recognized. Twin Towers, Sunburst, Bloody Man, Battle Axe. The Battle Axe is for Kerwin, and the White Sun on Black is Karstark. They're Northmen. My father's men are Robs. She didn't like to think what that meant. Bloody Bummers get off their horses as stable boys tend to the horses. Then ZZ Top cosplayer Vargohod reigns up below the King's Pyre Tower, and Sir Amory Lorch stumbles out to see what all the commotion is. My Lord Cthulhuan, Vargohod said. He had a thick, slobbery voice as if this tongue was too big for his mouth. What's all this, Hote? Sir Amory demanded, frowning. Captive! Ruth Bolton thought to cross the river, but my brave companion cut his fan to pieces, killed many, and then fell. <laughs> can't even fucking do it. And then Bolton running. This is their Lord Commander Glover, and the one behind is Thur Enith Frey. Amory Lorch looks down. <laughs> Lorch looks down from his balcony with disdain as Vargo, which. At Vargo, which, yeah, a human moment for, for Amory Lorch. He orders his Northmen to be taken to the dungeons, but then the Lord, who isn't a Lord, he's just a handsome man with a handsome plan, looks up and says, Hey, wait, what about that honorable treatment we were told about? Silence! Vargo screamed at him, Frank Sprittle. Sir Amory Lorch addresses the captives. What Vargo promised you is nothing to me. Lord Tywin may be the Castellan of Harrenhal, and I shall do with you as I please. He gestured to his guards. The great cell under the widow's tower ought to hold them all. Any who do not care to go are free to die here. Everyone rolls out all glumly, and Arya catches sight of Pink Eye. She decides to duck out before she catches a beating or whipping from him, though she never saw him do any any beating or whipping despite his threats to do so. But she's not willing to take any chances, so she slips out past some brave companions gathered around the bear. Gee, Georgie, keep bringing up that bear. I wonder. Arya moves through the mostly deserted castle as the noise of the brave companions fade behind her. Winds scream through the wailing tower and leaves fall from the trees in the godswood, making a faint, skittery sound as the wind drives them across the stones, which it's just a great line by George. Okay, the rest of the paragraph is also so good that I'm just going to read it, read it in full and quote it. Now that Harrenhal was near empty once again, sounded queer things here. Sometimes the stones seemed to drink up noise, shrouding the yards in a blanket of silence. Other times the echoes had a life of their own, so every footfall became the tread of a ghostly army, and every distant voice a ghostly feast. The funny sounds were one of the things that bothered Hot Pie, but not Arya. Arya moves through Harrenhal, able to able to traverse the castle easily without the presence of Tywin's guards to stop and question her. She makes her way over to the armory and hears banging. She stops and peers in to find Gendry, muscle like a Bane's fantasy, banging a hammer on a breastplate. Nope, not detecting any romantic overtones in this whatsoever. Arya slithers through a window and drops down beside him, wondering if Gendry will be impressed with her stunting, but no, he ain't. He tells her to get back to bed, but he wonders what all the noise was about. Arya tells him that Vargo has... That Arya tells him that Vargo Hote has returned with prisoners, her father's men. I saw their badges. There's a Glover from Deepwood Mott. He's my father's man. The rest too, mostly. All of a sudden, Arya knew why her feet had brought her here. Y- you have to help me out. Gendry laughed. And how do we do that? Arya says they're down to the dungeons. Swing your hammer, Thor. Gendry thinks this is not going to work. What about the guards? They'll kill them. Uh-huh. All of them? Of course, but there's if there's more than two, then Gendry is a no on this. Besides, Vargohot will cut off their feet and hands if they're caught. Arya accuses Gendry of being scurred, but Gendry tells her to piss off. Arya tries reasoning with Gendry, telling him that there were a hundred Northmen. They can free them and then escape from Harrenhal. 
Gendry shoots back that Arya can't save anyone. Just ask Lamy, Gendry says, offering an ice pack for the bruise before asking what they're, where they're going to go if they escape. Winterfell, she said at once. I'll tell Mother how they helped me, how you helped me, and you could stay. Wouldn't the lady permit? Can I shoot your horses for you and make swords for your lordly brothers? Sometimes Gendry made her so angry. You stop that! Why should I wager my feet for the chance to sweat in Winterfell in place of Harrenhal? You know old Ben Blackthumb? He came here as a boy. Smith for Lady Went and her father before her and his father before him and even Lord Lothstan, who held Harrenhal before the Wents. Now he's Smith for Lord Tywin. You know what he says? A sword, a helm's a helm, and if you reach in the fire, you get burned, no matter who you're serving. Lucan's a fair enough master. I'll stay here. Arya says that the queen will catch her, but Gendry says they probably didn't even want him. Bullshit, Arya responds. Gendry is somebody. I'm Apprentice Smith, and one day might or make Master Armorer if I don't run off and lose my feet or get myself killed. Arya's hands curled into helpless fists. The next time you make, put mule's ears on it or in the place of bulls. She had to flee or else she would have started hitting him. He probably wouldn't even feel it if I did. When they find out who he is and cut off a stupid mule head, he'll be sorry he didn't help. She was better off without him anyhow. He was one of the ones who got her caught in the village. Despite the anger, Arya thinks back to the village and the march up and all the horrible, shitty, shitty mountains men that she had encountered. But she also thinks about the victims too. She wasn't able to do anything but try to hide. And it was only Jack and Hagar who made her brave that made her a ghost. Arya had been avoiding Jacken since Weez's death. She was cool with the logistics of how Chiswick got pushed from a walk, but really, how did Jacken pull off the dog thing with Weez? Moreover, there was the whole deal with how Jacken ended up in the Black Cells. Was Jacken some sort of wizard and Rorge and Biter demons? Arya's only asking questions here. Jacken still owed her one death. And old Nan's stories about men who were given magic wishes by a grumpkin, you had to be especially careful with the third wish, because it was the last. Chiswick and Weiss hadn't been very important. The last death had to count. Arya told herself every night when she whispered her names, but now she wondered if there was truly the reason that she had hesitated. So long as she could kill with a whisper, Arya need not be afraid of anyone. But once she used up the last death, she would only be a mouse again. Arya doesn't want to go back to bed, and not, knowing where el- and not knowing where else to go, she decides to make for the godswood. She loves the smell of the trees, the feel of the grass and the dirt and the sound of the wind, and there was a stream there. And there, beneath rotting wood and twisting splinter branches, she found her hidden sword. Arya hiding her sword is kind of a theme for Arya's story, I see. Anyways, this sword isn't precisely a real sword, since Gendry, who is so goddamn hot and frustrating, refused to help her. Instead, it was the broken handle of a broom, and she was practicing on the drills that Syria had taught her back in the day. At night, she'd whack at the leaves on the trees, pretending they were Sir Illyn, Sir Marin, Cersei, or Sander. And when she got tired of killing her leafy enemies, she'd climb up to the top of the branches, rest, and then climb down. Back in Winterfell, she'd be able to climb and see her father Ned under the branches of the great heart tree. But that was there. Harrenhal is here. Arya stares at the face of the great weirwood tree with the terrible face of a twisting mouth and eyes full of hate. She wonders if that's what the gods would look like. Could the gods be heard? And this leads Arya strangely to prayer. Arya went to her knees. She wasn't sure how to begin. She clasped her hands together. Help me, old god, she prayed silently. Help me get those men out of the dungeon so we can kill Sir Amory and bring home and bring me home to Winterfell. Make me a water dancer and a wolf and not be afraid ever again. Was that enough? 
Maybe she should pray it aloud if she wanted the old gods to hear. Maybe she should pray longer. Sometimes her father had prayed a long time, she remembered. But the old gods had never helped him. Remembering that made her angry. You should have saved him, she scolded the tree. He prayed to you all the time. I don't care if you helped me or not. I don't think you could if you even wanted to. Gods are not mocked, girl. Arya jumps to her feet and draws her sword and finds Jack and Agar standing in the darkness. He says that the gods are not to be mocked, but now that he's here, could Arya maybe give him that third name she had been talking about? Arya asks how she, he knew she was there, and Jekin says, a man sees, hears, and knows. She regarded him suspiciously. Had the gods sent him? How'd you make the dogs kill Whis? Did you call Rorge and bite her up from hell? Is Jack and Agar your true name? Some men have many names. Weasel. Ari, Arya. She backed away from him until she pressed. She was pressed against the heart tree. Did Gendry tell? A man knows, he said again. My lady of stock. Maybe the gods had sent him to answer prayers. I need you to help me get those men out of the dungeons. That Glover and those others, all of them. We, need, we, we have to kill the guards and open the cell somehow. A girl forgets, he said quietly. Two she has had. Three were owed. If a guard must die, she needs only speak his name. But one guard won't be enough. We need, we need to kill all of them to open the cell. Arya bit her lip hard to stop from crying. I, I, I want you to save the Northmen like I saved you. Jekka responds that he owes her one more life. By the way, have I mentioned not to mock the gods? Arya says she wasn't mocking. But then she asks if, she, if he would kill anyone. A man is said. Anyone, she repeated. A man, a woman, a little baby, or Lord Tywin, or the High Septon, or your father. A man's sire is long dead, but did he live and did he know his name? He would die at your command. Swear it, Arya said. Swear it by the gods. By all the gods of sea and air and even him of fire, I swear it. He placed a hand in the mouth of the werewood. By the seven new gods and the old gods beyond count, I swear it. He has sworn. Even if I name the king, speak the name and death will come. On the morrow, at the turn of the moon, a year from this day it will come. A man does not fly like a bird, but one foot moves and then another, and one day a man is there, and a king dies. He knelt beside her, and so they were face to face. A girl whispers, if she fears to speak aloud, whisper it now. Is it Joffrey? Arya put her lips to his ear. It's Jack and Hagar. Arya... <laughs> Arya puts her hands behind her head and whispers, Checkmate, Fundy! No, she doesn't actually say that. But she does see real distress on Jack and Agar's face. He asks if she's fucking joking, and she's not. He swore an oath. And suddenly, there was a knife in Jacken's hands. Jacken mournfully says that Arya will lose a friend. Her only friend. But Arya knows that Jacken isn't her friend. A friend would help her, and he ain't helping. Jacken's smile rises and falls, and he says that Arya might name another name if he helps. And Arya agrees. The knife vanishes, and he orders her to follow. Now? She had never thought he would act so quickly. A man hears the whisper of sand in a glass. A man will not sleep until a girl and says a certain name. Now, evil child. I'm not an evil child, Arya thought. I'm a direwolf and a ghost in Harrenhal. She put her broomstick back in its hiding place and followed him from the god's wood. It, I just <laughs> just love that whatever Jack and Agar calls Arya an evil child is just one of those things that just touches my funny bone. And that is A Clash of Kings Arya 9 Part 1. Remember how the penultimate episode of Game of Thrones always has the episode 9 in early seasons being the best or the most dramatic episode of the season? It sure feels this way as we arrive at the penultimate chapter in Arya Stark's A Clash of Kings arc, which coincidentally is also her ninth chapter in A Clash of Kings. What did you gentlemen think? A nicely put, sir. And, uh... 
beautifully done in the synopsis to, to both of you, of course. Uh, yeah, this is probably my favorite Arya chapter in A Clash of Kings. Her next and last one is great as well, but this is such a perfectly structured puzzle box of a chapter. Every element setting up and paying off in ways that are unexpected in the moment, but feel inevitable in retrospect. Arya 9 is the climax of her story in this book in multiple respects, in terms of plot and theme and character all at once. What did you think of it, Zach? What I love about this chapter and Arya as a character is related to the distance that she has from all the royal bullshittery, the political stuff, the grittiness that she goes through, you know, not to overuse that term. Uh, and the characters, obviously, the, you know, the Brotherhood Without Banners and all these cast of characters that she meets along the way. Um, obviously, she's not fully removed from the politics of the story, as we see here, but she's not scheming around with courtesans and lords and knights. Her scheming here fucking starts with a hot pie. <laughs> and when Gendry and Hot Pie reject her notions of escape, it's one more nail in the coffin of her highborn Stark ties. You know, a process that takes a while, but it's an identity that she's changed multiple times since Ned's execution, as Jockin notes. But outside the specifics of this chapter, what captures my attention in fantasy fiction is not the courts and politics and interpersonal dramas of the royal coterie, but the more struggles and adventures of folks on the ground. Give me hobbits and unshaven rangers in an autumn tavern any day over the tedium of Targaryen family trees and betrayals and conspiracies. Blah, 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 blah. Give me Art of the Hill witnessing the unquestionable power of a silent, mysterious fire god over all the pristine springtime realms of elves and knights with their circular tables. Varus origin story from the recently and expertly covered Tyrion 10. It's one of the most captivating passages in the entire series, for my money. And Arya's journey through this book is already very much, quote-unquote, gritty and real. This chapter, for me, is the her dive into that whole world, the beautiful ugliness of magic and murder. Still a transitional phase in Arya's overall journey. And there's lots of tension here between her old familiar life and the unfamiliar places where she lands by the close of book five. Up until this point, she's only one killed, uh, sorry, she's only killed accidentally or in self-defense, not in cold blood, but by the end of the chapter, she's responsible for a full-on slaughter. Gendry and Hot Pie are familiar, safe faces that Arya feels are most directly able to help fulfill her stated goal of getting back to Winterfell, as Emma will discuss here in a bit. Because after all, compared to the nightmarish ex existence of Hall, there's no place like home. I like what you're saying a lot because, um, you know, I tend to incline more towards the high conspiracy and the political intrigue, the battle tactics and strategies and the war shit that I love so much. But getting down into the actual shit with magic murder genies is a fun turn in George's storytelling. And it's one that he's going to employ throughout Arya's storyline and without the magic murder genie in Jamie, Brienne and Quentin's arcs going forward. And kind of along those same lines about getting down into the shit, I was thinking about the curse of Heron Hall and that kind of small ball type way, not like the Melisandre and Stannis having these dire conversations about the nature of man and evil and what is good and righteous and good and all those things and who will be the savior of the world and what the savior has to do here. Because I think like the, the idea of the curse of Hall is much more grounded and based in 
small things and people primarily. And we came down to the idea in a prior episode about Harrenhal being cursed. And, and I was thinking about the curse in the context of these smaller characters and how they become fairy tale monsters in this abattoir of a castle. And you got things like an extremely minor character like Pink Eye. He just drinks all day and night and his eyes are like running, practically bleeding, right? You also have the bloody mumbers. They're not the kind of cell source that we see, like especially in A Dance with Dragons, they're the types that perform sickening acts of cruelty and ride not horses, but zorses. Well, I guess some of the cell source do provide, do sickening acts of violence in, in A Dance with Dragons too. But these guys are go ahead and behind, behind go go above and beyond what the uh, the normal practice of cell source companies are. You got Weiss in prior chapters, who is no mere, who is no mere overseers, but a psychopath who sicks his dog on people who annoy him. Rorsch and Biter are nightmare human beings whose evil becomes refracted through Harrenhal's dark light. Jacken was just a weirdo before he came to Harrenhal. Now he's a magical murder genie. And of course, I'm as we talked about in a prior episode, I'm a believer in the curse in Harrenhal. But even if I wasn't, the castle does things to people. No, it, <laughs> it doesn't cause people to be evil. But it magnifies it, it breeds it, and multiplies the evil that dwells in the hearts of men. And it's in that literal and metaphorical darkness that the curtains open to Arya and Hot Pie in the literal and metaphorical dark. Yes, we start with Arya and Hot Pie. This chapter takes us to some suspenseful and then weird and then bleak places, but it starts on a note of intimate humor in the kitchens. As with the food chain imagery in Arya 8 we talked about with McCall, as with the range of political and magical power at work in the castle, George captures the full emotional spectrum in this chapter, painting with every color. Hall, as I've said before, is just gargantuan enough to serve as a stand-in for the realm itself, every structure reified within its walls. There's ghosts, I know there is. Whether or not Hot Pie is literally correct is less important than that he knows this to be true. It is accepted wisdom in Harrenhal, in this, this microcosm of the realm. Arya scorns the accepted wisdom, as she did on the outside, given that it hasn't protected her, and never seemed to have a place for her anyway. As she points out, Pia is always seeing things in the buttery. Usually they're not ghosts. They're flesh-and-blood men come to fuck her. That's the lived reality of Harrenhal, the visible, tangible stuff of the day-to-day -day mundane existence Arya, ha Arya inhabits in contrast to the other POVs, as Zach was pointing out so well. You are being screwed, literally and figuratively, not by ghosts, but by your fellow man. Arya wades neck-deep into man-made conflict in this chapter. Hot Pie whispers about ghosts, the fairy tale legend at the core of Harrenhal's dark reputation, while his arms are elbow-deep in flour. And that, right there, is where Harrenhal's power actually comes from, as far as Arya is concerned. Sustenance, resources, physical, political power. The hierarchy of Harrenhal is not that of the dead versus the living, it's the people who want tarts versus the people who have to wake up and make those tarts. <laughs> and, and I like the too about Hot Pie being covered in flour, talking about ghosts. And I think that should remind us of the story that Arya remembered when she was down in the tunnels under the Red Keep after Ciro Farrell told her to go. When she was remembering the story about when Rob took her, Sansa, and Bran down to the crypts, warning that there were ghosts who were hungry for her blood down there. And the quote from A Game of Thrones, When the spirit stepped out of the open tomb, pale, white, and bony for blood, Sansa ran, shrieking for the stairs, and Bran wrapped himself around Rob's legs, sobbing. Arya stood her ground and gave the spirit a punch. It was only Jon, 
covered with flour. And we'll be talking about that moment from Game of Thrones. We talked about how the story hinted at future story development for John becoming a ghost and the likelihood of the dead rising in the crypts, like we saw in season eight's The Long Night and likely replicated in A Dream of Spring. Here, I'm hoping that the foreshadowing doesn't have Hot Pie becoming a ghost because I really would like to see this guy survive. But I do think this does speak to the past, present, and future of Harrenhal. It's a castle of ghosts, the hubris of man brought low by magical fire-breathing dragons who killed everyone inside of the castle with magical fire. And soon, this castle will be haunted by more ghosts, more blood, more death. So Hot Pie and Paya aren't wrong. There are ghosts in the crypts. There is a history of blood, fire, and death here in Harrenhal. And this castle is haunted by its evil history and sinister reputation. And the flower, I think, kind of works as a stand-in for that truth. I really like that connection. Yeah, back to the Winterfell crypts. I think it's that same idea, the mundane versus the supernatural. And in the more kind of mundane political context with which Arya is familiar, Arya wants to spit in Amory Lorch's tarts, a private, intimate way of expressing her hatred of the men who rule her world. Hot Pie glances around, nervously, even though no one is watching. He thinks they'll get caught, even though, as Arya says, it's not like you can taste spit. Hot Pie is attaching supernatural properties to the mortal men who run Harrenhal. In his mind, really, they are the ghosts of the castle, as Varus supposedly uses black magic in his espionage. It's not literal sorcery, but the paranoia as though it were. Life under men like this, bullies who rule with an iron fist, is akin to life under possession, never knowing if the others or Euron Crozai are listening. Arya is right to want to strike back against that. Yeah, but if Amory can't taste the spit, as she points out, well, what's the point of her protest? It gives her nothing but temporary catharsis. I, I agree. And I think sometimes we as fans, like we look at Hot Pie and we see a laughable character with a silly name. And we also see a character who doesn't have Arya Stark's temperament and the residue of the noble upbringing, which contributed to, to her ability to shrug off danger and death. I mean, what I'm saying is that Arya is kind of an outlier to how people should behave given the circumstances that these kids have gone through. And Hot Pie is more of the norm, right? He's a scared kid who has seen things that no child should see. He fought a battle at the god's eye and he watched people die in battle and then burn to death in the farm. He saw animals burn to death there too. Hot Pie was there when Kutchak and Tarbor abandoned them in the Riverlands, demonstrating that no adult would protect them. And he watched as Wrath the Sweetling murdered Lamy Greenhands before he was forced marched through the hell of Gregor Clegane and the mountain men's and the mountains men to Harrenhal. And then he got beaten with wooden spoons for just for just giving Arya an extra tart just two chapters prior, which makes what Arya does at the end of the scene when she steals a tart a lot less admirable rather than daring. And of course, Hot Pie is reluctant to take a wrong step or do something that would potentially get himself tortured, beaten, or killed. This is the life that Hot Pie has led, and he's not about to step out of line to get killed for a meaningless act of defiance. Now, that being said, Hot Pie knows who Amory Lorch is, and he doesn't immediately reject this small act of defiance when Arya suggests it. It's clear that Hot Pie isn't comfortable with his confinement in the same way that Gendry will prove later on. Hot Pie knows who Amory Lorch is, knows that it was he who perpetrated the atrocity against Yorin and the other Night's Watch charges at the village back in Arya's fourth chapter in A Clash of Kings. So he does consider this meaningless act of defiance for a moment before wisely deciding it's a meaningless act of defiance and fucking stupid. We're moving on. It's a calculated choice on his part, given his situation. And it's that that situation is not quite identical to Arya's. Not, not as much as she'd like to think about it, maybe. 
Arya feels light as she steals Sir Amory's tart. She feels daring, lightfoot, underfoot, the ghost of Harrenhal, no longer a powerless mouse. Starvation on the streets of King's Landing made it hard for her to remember why her father taught her not to steal. She's not exactly starving in Harrenhal, but stealing from Amory is a way to avoid the pure void of despair about her situation. As readers, we do get to share in Arya's intimate little triumphs, giving her a fond smile and thumbs up as she tastes the flavorful tart. But keep in mind what Hot Pie said about the tarts, and yeah, what happened to him a couple chapters ago. If Amory notices one missing, it's not Arya who will suffer for it. It's Hot Pie who will suffer for it. And this is not to cast Arya as cruel and careless. She does want to escape Harrenhal with Hot Pie and Gendry, after all. But because of her age and how she was raised, she is unable to fully comprehend that their perspective on all this is very different from hers. For Arya of House Stark, that tart is a symbol of her defiance. For Hot Pie, that tart is the proof of his utility to the powerful, which is what keeps him alive. In other words, this simple tart means completely opposite things to these two children because of their different relationships to power. Even before Vargo Hote shows up with his northern quote-unquote prisoners, Arya is talking escape with Hot Pie. And that's what this whole chapter is geared towards even as it moves through so many situations and characters. Arya getting out. Harrenhal, to her mind, was nothing but a big-ass detour on her road home to Winterfell. Now that Weiss is dead, she thinks, she's not being watched as closely, she has a chance to escape. This is interesting because it's Arya trying to fold her second wish, the one she immediately regretted, back into an affirming narrative of her flight toward freedom. In the moment of Weiss's death back in Arya 8, Arya felt horror and sickening shame at the realization that she basically wasted the one leverage she has over power. Weiss was personally abusive to her, but he wasn't at the heart of why all of this is happening, unlike, say, Tywin. Arya has to find some way of recasting what happened in her head in a way that allows her to move forward. Weiss was replaced by Mebel, aka Pink Eye, a man as unthreatening as Weiss was threatening. He gets drunk, he passes out, Arya does whatever she wants. I mean, they call him Pink Eye, it's not exactly intimidating. Of course, Arya is able to wander around Harrenhal, basically doing as she pleases, not only because she had Weiss killed, but because as she did so, the army left, and so there's too few men to keep track of everyone. That's the larger picture, over which she still has no power, even as Jockin's ability to kill at will seemed to give her a way to strike back. And to your point, according to Jockin himself, when Arya is preparing to speak that third name, he tells her it could be days or even years before that person's actually assassinated. That's true. She's dealing with real... uh. Delayed gratification, which, you know, is not an easy thing for A, anybody, B, especially any child, and C, not a, a child in a life-or-death situation like Arya Stark, so she's, she's just not inclined to put up with it. In order to feel like her decisions, her will, still carries weight, Arya has to steal the tart, and she has to keep working towards her goal of escape. The lessons Sirio taught her back in book one keep coming back allowing her to use her senses to master her environment, hearing what Hot Pie cannot. Listen with your ears, not with your mouth, as she says to him. Soak in what's happening, rather than just blundering over everything with your own noise. And that's good advice. It helps Arya. 
but it does not cure her of her own blind spots, her figurative, not literal, inability to see and hear the truth. What Arya cannot accept is that Hot Pie does not want to escape Harrenhal. He wouldn't even conceive of that as an escape, not really. As far as Hot Pie is concerned, Harrenhal is the escape from the world outside, the deprivation they went through when they were on their own. It's better in here than out there, because out there we ate worms, and in here we are making bread. Nothing motivates man like hunger. As I said in previous Arya chapters here, George is complicating our perspective on Harrenhal and Arya's story within it by calling our attention to multiple kinds of horror and asking us which of them is more important. For Hot Pie, the ghosts are real, but Harrenhal is still preferable to him because of the more mundane physical realities of the place. For Arya, the ghosts are not real. But the mundane physical realities are only a temporary self. So while Arya is more materialist and grounded than Hot Pie when it comes to the supernatural, her head is firmly in the clouds when it comes to the question of how they are to actually live in this age of wonder and terror. Winterfell was never endgame for Hot Pie. The bosom of hearth and home was never waiting for him at the end of the hero's journey. He was headed to the Wall for a lifetime of servitude, freezing his ass off in exchange for three square meals a day, sacrificing for a realm that will neglect him, abandon him, rely on him while forgetting he was ever there. For Arya, the difference between Harrenhal and Winterfell, Lannister and Stark, is night and day, the heart of the matter. For Hot Pie, life at Harrenhal is a better deal than he was likely to achieve anywhere else. Neither of them are wrong. Both reach conclusions that make sense to them. They inhabit the same world, and yet, at the same time, they don't. So what is important? Whose story matters? Whose truth matters? How do you reconcile your values, our different life stories? Arya must confront these questions again and again in her chapters, and there are no easy answers for her. Even as George carefully builds the tension and excitement leading to the prison break with one hand, the other hand is busy undercutting all of that, showing us perspectives in which the prison break isn't even a prison break to be longed for, and this forces us to contemplate our own perspective and its limitations. Yeah, I think it's a, that's a really great perspective, and I wonder whether George is doing a little bit of meta here, which is not the last time he'll do in his own series, and it's not the last time in this very chapter, so we'll cover in part two. Arya could be a stand-in for readers of fantasy, constantly urging other people in the stories to do the brave, heroic, daring thing, because that's what we, as readers, want them to do. Like us, readers of fantasy, Arya's been kind of immunized, immunized from the depredations that affect the hot pies, pies, and ganders of this world for most of her life. We think people can run into certain death situations and come out unscathed. It's just fantasy, right? It's just a story. But this is where George's melding of different genres into A Song of Ice and Fire kind of crystallizes things and makes Arya's perspective a bit short-sighted, to say the least. Marching into certain death in A Song of Ice and Fire won't have the protagonist coming out the other side grinning and unhurt. It will lead to, guess it, certain death. Arya's story in Harrenhal in A Clash of Kings is the dark side of fantasy where the monsters get you. I mean, where horror creeps in, forcing readers to understand that bad things will happen to good people if you're not careful. And Hot Pie realizes this. He's realized this his entire life growing up in King's Landing. 
He knows he's one of those elf soldiers from the battle under Mount Doom who Sauron swats death, those unnamed elf soldiers rather, not the hero Saruman or Frodo, uh, <clears throat> Frodo of course, who's the hero of, of Lord of the Rings, uh, who is, is able to go through certain death situations and come out unscathed. Hot Pie is the guy who is the common type of person you're going to find in 98, 99% of all the people on this planet. They're not going to do stupid, shitty things in order to attain small, really kind of unrealistic and meaningless victories. He's the guy that that wants to just survive, to go to live to the next day. And I think that makes Hot Pie, whatever you say about him, much more relatable as a character than even a character like Arya Stark, who I like. But Hot Pie is more relatable. Let's be real. Yeah, I think Arya's – you make a great point. There's two different kinds of relatability and that like Arya's need to solve it and do the big heroic thing is relatable – but then Hot Pie's more grounded perspective is also relatable. And the reader has to go through this process of like, oh, I'm Arya. And then thinking, oh, no, wait, I'm actually Hot Pie. Like if you drop me in that situation, no, no, no. I want to be in my corner and everything is okay. <laughs> and I have flour and sugar and I don't have to think about this. Yeah, that would absolutely be me. That's much more realistic in truth. Having played this kind of neat little game with the shifting perspectives of Arya and Hot Pie, George now extends his gamesmanship to the plot itself. Arya arrives at the gate of Harrenhal, having heard the horn of someone arriving, to find plunder that is not plunder. Prisoners who are not prisoners. Lannister cronies who no longer fit that description. What seems forthright to her at first, a phenomenon both logistically and morally simple to explain, ends up more complicated than she can grasp. What Arya thinks of as plunder taken in battle is actually a bribe that has been tendered to the Bloody Mummers. The Northmen she thinks of as Vargo Hote's prisoners are actually his new comrades in arms. Life in Harrenhal, in the realm at war, in the fallen world of adults, is considerably more corrupt than she had imagined. Even Amory Lorch is caught flat-footed, naive in his own way about how his world works. George lingers with his narrative camera for a while on Robert Glover commander of the Northmen in question, so that we invest sympathy and desperate hope in him as Arya does. I know those banners. Those are my father's men and Rob's. They remind me of the home to which I long to escape. And now they're here, in chains. And she doesn't want to think about what that might mean. Of course, what she thinks it means is that the Northmen lost a battle, and that's what Vargo Hote tells Amory. The truth is both better and worse from Arya's POV. Better in that the Northmen didn't lose a battle and are about to t and are about to take Harrenhal away from Emery Lorch. It's worse though in that they are not actually the enemies of the cruel, hateful, bloody mummers. They are new best friends. Roose Bolton's master plan passes right over the heads of both Arya and Emery Lorch, locked as they are into different sides of the same oppositional mindset. I can't blame Arya for hating the Lannisters, of course, but West bad and North good is just not an accurate view, and it blinds her here. George keeps us distracted with Vargo's lisp, which uh, Jeff did so well, his mutual enmity with Amory, and the fate of the Northern prisoners. So we don't question any element of Vargo's story, which if we did, that story really doesn't make any sense. Everything we know about the Bloody Mummers suggests that they are cowardly bullies, only picking fights with people who can't fight back, not armies. Moreover, there's just not that very there's just not very many of them. There's like what like a hundred bloody mummers? Is it really likely they were able to defeat Roose Bolton, a canny commander with like ten thousand men? Just like Arya, 
just like Amory Lorch, the reader has a limited perspective and so cannot grasp what's really happening here until it's already happened. We feel George pulling the wool from our eyes to show us the truth he hid from us. Yeah, and, and I got to be honest, I, I'm just not over Game of Thrones Tyrion 8 when George R. R. Martin told me, personally me, that Bruce Bolton was intentionally throwing the Battle of the Green Fork. I find George didn't wasn't addressing me specifically. It was like a suspect Martin from like 2001, but still, I was only 17 years old at the time. Uh, <laughs> the thing is, is that it felt personal to me because here we see when Roos wants to win a battle, he comes up with some pretty smart battle plan, smart battle plans, or he utilizes other smart battle plans suggested by others, as I'll talk about here in a moment. Right away, we see the sense in the plan itself. Arya repeatedly says that Amory Lorch has 100 men to hold the castle. 100 men for a thousand doors. 100 men are holding the castle. This is brought up repeatedly over and over again. Again, it's wild how hard Tywin tried to cross into the Westerlands that he took all but like a hundred of his dudes with him for that battle itself. It's also wild too that Harrenhal could be held with the 100 men, but I digress. So Bruce Bolton sends 100 Northmen as captives of the Bloody Bombers to infiltrate the castle. Add in the other 100 Bloody Bombers that Emmett was referencing before, and the anti Amory forces all have the Westermen at a significant force disparity, at least two to one. Plus, there's the disadvantage of the walls of Harrenhal is then immediately mitigated by getting these guys into the castle itself without the hassle of building siege engines and equipment, slashing the walls, and getting a lot of your asses killed. Note that Bruce Bolton's MO throughout the narrative is to keep his main army preserved while risking others in his service. That's just a Bruce Bolton method right here. Note too that Ramsay will use this same trick, opposing as an ally of Theon Greyjoy, in order to gain entry into Winterfell later in the same book. It's almost like father and son have like the same kind of mindset about these things, and maybe it was Bruce Bolton who suggested this plan to Ramsay. I don't know. We'll talk about that when we get to the end of A Clash of Kings. So Robert Glover and Aenys Frey are in the char- are in charge of the River and Northmen in this fight, while Bruce and Steelshanks Bolton don't show up in until after the castle is taken. Confusingly, Robert is called Lord Commander here, and it's referred to, and he's also referred to as a lord in this chapter in the next Arya chapter, which leads me to think that George is uh, a little bit confused about Robert's role in House Clover, as the appendix entries for Robert don't have him as heir to Deepwood Mod in A Clash of Kings and A Storm of Swords, but then he becomes heir in the appendices for A Feast of Crows and Dance of Dragons. Again, just some nerd shit that I'm really not a part of because I'm not a nerd. Regardless, Emmett mentioned aspects of Vargo Hoth's story that don't make any sense, and yeah, man. Amory is a fucking ding-dong in this chapter. Something I caught in this reread is how Vargo rolls up with all these captured goods, or I assume they're captured, they guess could be forage, but claims to have cut but claims to have cut off Roos Bolton's vanguard, that is his forward element of his main army, while the baggage trains are typically kept in the rear of the army to prevent their capture. So Roos Bolton had all of his forage, all of his baggage trains in front of his army. That doesn't make a lot of sense, and Amory Lorch should have known better, but of course he doesn't, because again, he's a fucking ding-dong. And Amory Lorch's reaction is one of displeasure, not suspicion, which of course dooms him. Why Emery Lorsch is displeased is kind of unclear. Does he simply just hate Vargo Hote? I understand that. I mean, I, I don't like this guy. Maybe he wants the glory of defeating Bruce Bolton in battle, or maybe he figures he'll have more mouths to feed if he has all these Northmen inside the castle. But he's Tywin Lannister's dog, and Vargo Hote is Tywin Lannister's ostensible dog too. So he's going to hug Vargo Hote like he did back in Arya 7, because he has to, because he's a sworn Lannister man, and Vargo Hote is also a sworn Lannister man, right? No. Vargo Hote's loyalties lie elsewhere, and his loyalty lies in the form of who is going to actually be victorious in this role, which is just hilarious how Vargo Hote switches sides in the War of the Five Kings at the moment the Tywin Lannister starts to become ascendant. This is just the Vargo Hote story, and I, I, I mean, I don't like what happens to Vargo Hote ultimately, but I do think that there's a delicious amount of irony 
And Fargo switching sides to the winning side just as the winning side starts to lose. As Arya wanders away from the gate, George takes some time to viscerally ground us in the funhouse topsy-turvy world of Harrenhal. Echoes do strange things to sound here. Winds shriek, leaves skitter. And for those already inclined to fear ghosts, reading into the Rorschach blot of the castle like the Red Comet above, this is proof of the supernatural. Again, Arya knows better. That that's not literal ghosts making those noises, it's just the way the castle is shaped. But the castle is shaped like this, it is what it is, because of dragonfire, because of supernatural power. Heron Hall was conceived as Black Heron's tribute to his own political power, rendered moot by the game-changing arrival of magical power, Aegon, his sisters, and their dragons. The castle is left this grotesque, overgrown maze, simultaneously reaching for the stars and crashing back down to Earth. There are ghosts, I know it, as Hot Pie says, is a way of processing life in a place that just feels so damn wrong, that it wasn't built for you, as Arya thought about it earlier in the book. These magical elements don't necessarily act on their own. Harrenhal is not haunted in the campfire story sense, with literal agency and consciousness. But there is something about the place that kindles dark fires in the human heart. Magical radiation seeping out from the very bones of the castle. It gives a framework for the seething, inchoate consciousness of humanity, a shadow on a wall for us to project into. Arya thinks of herself as the ghost of Harrenhal, a way for her to feel in control of her environment. Harrenhal is a crucible that burns away lies and exposes your true self, as we're going to see with Jamie in the Storm of Swords. It's a wellspring of power, but it's frozen in architecture. It has to be acted upon, taken possession of. But everyone who does so succumbs to the curse, the wages of the fiery ladder. In its current state, Harrenhal renders its occupants absurd for even trying to possess it. Ambry Lorch does not have enough men to really hold this place together, much like Theon at Winterfell in our last episode. He has a hundred men to guard a thousand doors, a perfect encapsulation of how the powers that be in the Civil War jealously guard what they have seized without realizing the war has emptied it all out. If Harrenhal is the realm, then the realm is bereft of occupancy, life, and laughter. We are left alone with our ghosts, frozen memories of our will. Yeah, I I just thought he builds it in, like you said, it's not a campfire haunted, it's it's just like in the, the cell structure of the building itself, the way that it was built as, you know, the, the kind of manifestation uh, of, of Heron and, and his idea of what he was building and protecting against, and then what actually came and turned it all to nothing. And somehow those two, those two forces, the tension of that, you know, just it got baked in there and, and, and you see it weaves throughout the rest of the story. That's great. That, that, that power in time and space and how it just lingers with you as the generations go on. Who we were weighs down like a crushing stone on who we are. Everyone who holds Harrenhal reenacts this same rise and fall that you were talking about. It can't be any other way, for Harrenhal is the crossover point of all kinds of power. You fight like hell to lay claim to your prize, only to find that all the fighting reduced the prize to ash and dust. So you have what you wanted, 
a mausoleum draped with your banners, a graveyard of which you are king. In the middle of this wax museum, Arya stumbles upon warm, moving flesh. Gendry, hard at work in the forge, like hot pie in the kitchens. And that parallel was very clear to me on reread. As Arya puts it, when Gendry is at work, nothing exists for him but fire and metal and his own will within them. It's the raw moment of creation, elements transformed and reborn, the spark of inspiration like writing or farming or raising children that makes life worth living in the end. Hot Pie feels the same way about flour and sugar that Gendry feels about flame and steel. From the pieces of this broken world, I rebuild myself. For Arya, home and family is what gives her meaning. And the only pieces she can lay claim to in order to get there are the instruments of death. Before she tries to do that, however, she pauses to watch Gendry work, clearly experiencing early sexual stirring at the sight of his body. Expressing both fear and desire is necessary to avoid crushing miserabilism, in which the story simply becomes a parade of torments. There is no lesson to be learned from that, nothing to take away. Desire without fear is indulgence. Not that there's necessarily anything wrong with that, but dramatically it's not very potent. Conversely, fear without desire lacks the crucial ingredient of temptation. Arya must want, reach out, and then recoil from the result. Sex and death, the haunting extremes of the human experience, with the body as the battleground between the two. Gendry shapes his own body with the disciplined movements with which he shapes steel. You can see a glimmer there of the idea of the united body and soul, the crossover point between art and action discussed by the ancient Greeks and pushed forward quite obsessively by Japanese poet-slash-philosopher-slash-nationalist activist Yukio Mishima. But Mishima's idealism ran aground on the realities of politics, his own included. And the same thing happens with the idealized image of Gendry. He is muscled like a maiden's fantasy, as his father Robert was before him. Yet just as Robert's image withered and died when he came time to rule, Arya's own maiden's fantasy of Gendry is complicated by their power dynamic. Arya realizes all at once why she came here. Why she's so restless. Why she can't stop bothering her friends. This is her chance to get out. And once more, as with Hot Pie, Gendry tells her not only that he doesn't want to come, but that she has no idea what she's talking about. Hot Pie, however, is intimidated by Arya. Gendry is not, and so he puts things more bluntly. He says that Arya seems to have learned nothing from what they went through. You're still playing the spunky princess? You still think that's going to work? You still think you can just transform material reality that way? The fact of the matter is, as he says, that two guards would be enough to stop and kill them both if they were stupid enough to try what Arya is proposing. If Arya had internalized the lesson of Gregor Clegane's ultraviolence, she would not even be thinking of doing this. Well, what is that lesson, exactly? As Gendry argues... That lesson is you survive by being useful. The people with the power to kill you think of you as, at best, a resource. And the solution is to be a useful resource. This is the chilling worldview of chattel slavery that infects systems that are not even on the surface necessarily chattel slavery. 
and there is no way outside that system. There is no better world out of the stories and songs Gendry can reach if he just tries hard enough the way Arya is implying. Absolutely right. And I think you were talking before about Gendry being muscled like a maiden's fantasy. And we also get another reference to Gendry being Robert Baratheon's bastard when it's mentioned that Gendry's hammer was like part of his arm, which connects really beautifully to Robert in his prime with his warhammer being an extension of his arm as he's swinging against his enemies and, the, and, and Robert's in his own rebellion. But there are other parallels between father and son that are less flattering in this chapter. And I understand where Gendry is coming from, as I'll talk about in a bit. But you do get the sense that he's growing comfortable in this in his setting. It's too comfortable, if you ask me. And that's what happened with Robert, too. You know, a lot of people ask, like, what was Robert doing in the years after Robert's Rebellion? Because we don't really hear about much of what was going on at the court before we get to the Great Joy Rebellion in 289. Well, I think we're getting a picture of what Robert was like in these early years of his reign. Robert became too comfortable with life at court. He had no battles to fight, no lost love to fight for. So he got comfortable, fat, lazy as king. Now, Gendry isn't quite at the fat and lazy state of things. I mean, he is definitely getting his upper body strength going on here, which I really approve very strongly. What Gendry is doing here, working that, you know, that hammer, like getting those, like those delts in those, that shoulder work is just brilliant. Good, good job on Gendry's part there. But, but, but in all seriousness, he is, he is showing this kind of comfortability with letting things lie just kind of sitting back and just living in this moment. And uh, thankfully for Gendry, he, he's, is going to be He's going to prove more dynamic than his sire in the long term, and he will fight for the right with the Brotherhood Without Banners. But though, but through Gendry, like I said, you can see the early stages of Robert Baratheon in the immediate years following his rebellion and after his coronation, and what became of this guy who Ned said was Ned says was muscle like a maiden's fancy. His hammer was an extension of himself, and when Ned sees him again in 297 AC, he's grown fat, too fat even to sit a horse. Yeah, I just, I really think, you know, the way you guys are talking about his uh, kind of um, political understanding and, and the way he's kind of growing into himself, I kind of want to see that that alternate path where he kind of buys into some of this magical element with Arya and explores that. And, you know, he kind of wants to um, stick with the Brotherhood, but just, you know, I, I'd love to see that kind of play out in the long run, but I don't think that's really going to pay off in the end. <laughs> I don't think George really gives a shit. <laughs> Probably not in Gendry's case, but yeah, it's it's fun. You can easily imagine him as kind of like a Thor figure with with his hammer, and they, you know you could easily see a, a version of Gendry becomes more magically inclined. But those you know those forking paths that come up for all these characters and their supporting characters and their friends, and so often they have to part ways, and even before they part ways, they diverge in terms of what they want, what they what they're trying for in life. We're seeing that here. Winterfell means an end to suffering for Arya. It simply cannot mean that for Gendry, because all it would mean in practical terms is that he is sweating for someone else. All that would change is he, Gendry, would have a risk to getting his limbs hacked off by Vargo Hote in the process. Now, unfortunately, the powers that be won't let honest laborers like Gendry stay neutral. But Gendry's larger point remains. Arya is not recognizing that the danger facing Gendry and Hot Pie is a permanent proposition for them. Arya is acting as though Winterfell means home and hearth for Gendry, instead of just another place to make horseshoes for rich people. And in truth, Gendry doesn't even mind making horseshoes for rich people, as long as he also gets to work the forge on his own account, on his own time. The stirrings of real-life labor history there, craft potentially leading to independence. What Gendry can't stand anymore is this narrative Arya keeps pushing, wherein the Lannisters are their political foes as members of Team Stark. That's what we all are, right, gang? 
No. Robert Glover is not Gendry's friend, any more than Emery Lorch is Gendry's friend. There is literally no reason for him to think as Arya does. As Jorah said, the people just want to be left alone. A sword is a sword, a helm is a helm, and fire burns no matter who you're working for. These material facts of the world are meaningful to Gendry, not Stark versus Lannister. As Gendry reminds Arya, she couldn't save Lamy. Her plan is less a sensible strategy than a desperate desire to make up for that failure. Arya calls him a coward. That doesn't work. Gendry is unimpressed. Arya then reminds Gendry that the queen wanted him. He's important. And you can understand Arya's perspective. She cares about Gendry and wants him by her side, within her same social and cultural milieu. She wants him to be part of the stories and songs. But as she is inadvertently exposing, Gendry's noble status is not something he can make use of to better his life. It's a target on his back, and he wants no part of it. You're somebody, Arya insists. Yep, Gendry replies, I am a smith. And someday I will be a master armorer if I don't get myself killed first. Uh, I just I just want to argue with Gendry about this point because, I mean, my counterpoint is that there is a measurable distinction between the Starks and the Lannisters in this war. And look, I'm going to be entirely fair to Gendry because I like him and I love his upper body routine. Um, uh, but it's, it, you know, <laughs> I think it's unfair to dispute Gendry's perspective for the justification for Northern Independence or Rob calling the banners for, for Ned Stark and all that macro political shit as, as Zach was talking about. It's it's unfair for, for us to talk about Gendry in that context. Gendry isn't playing the Game of Thrones yet, but we can see a distinction in how Gendry himself is treated by the Lannisters and their lackeys at the very least. It's the gold cloaks who come galloping up on Yorin's band, demanding Gendry to be surrendered surrender to them at the Queen's order so as to be murdered by them, as we find out with all of the rest of Robert's bastards that Cersei is able to get the, get her hands around. It's Amory Lorch and his goons who murder Yorin and the Night's Watch recruits at the abandoned village at the God's Eye. It's Gregor Clegane who leads the Death March to Harrenhal and does all of the atrocities against the small folk. All of those bad things that happened to Gendry came at the behest of Tywin and Cersei Lannister, not the Starks. So I guess the Starks should come out by omission at the very least in Gendry's mind, but they don't. And I, I agree that Gendry isn't making a moral equivalency argument the way that some evil, stupid fans do. He's making, I'm going to live a lot longer if I stay out of everything argument. The problem is that the Lannisters will leave Gendry in and only allow him to live so as to provide valuable slave labor for their war crime of a campaign in the Riverlands. All of that armor and those swords and those spears that he's beating into into being, they're all fueling Tywin Lannister's efforts to fight, kill, and murder peasants in the, in the Riverlands. The thing is, is, and this leads to my singular criticism of the chapter, so, so to speak, is that this scene would have been a lot more effective if it had come in Arya's 10th chapter rather than her 9th chapter, because there, Gendry could have made the effective argument that there is no functional difference to the lives of the small folk under the Lannisters or the Starks or their respective loyalists. Yeah, I uh, I think, you know, like I said about the, uh, the where where I like my fantasy, and like you guys were talking about, that we're more hot pie in this scenario than than Arya. Uh, you know, just imagine yourself just to, just as you are in this time, and just the violence that's just that just exists. People just get fucked up so bad in the most random ways, like all throughout the backstories and in these scenes. And 
you know, that, that whole notion to just like, look, it, whatever it is, I'm, I just want to live. And, you know, something might change down the road, something might not, but like day to day, I'm getting through it. And that's totally relatable. I agree. And I think, you know, as, as Jeff was saying, it's, it's not quite that Gendry is saying that the Starks are the moral equivalent of the Lannisters here. He's saying that whatever the difference is, it's not worth risking me for it. Like, it's not, what what am I going to get out of that difference other than potentially losing my feet to Vargo Hote? And when Gendry is forced towards more political action, it's not taking up arms for Rob, but it's taking up arms with the Brotherhood without banners, and they appeal to him on the basis of their actions and how they handle both sides. So I think you can see some some interesting political development uh, for, for Gendry there. And Gendry does finally force Arya to reckon with the potential human cost of her antics and shenanigans, and so reckon with why she's doing this. She says she, want, she wants to free the Northmen in order to, to get out and to save the day. And she does believe that, but this is also about her own agency and control. Gendry asked whether she learned anything during their torturous stay in that village by the lake, and what she learned was to hate powerlessness. I think it's rare that a human being gives themselves 100% over to submission, body and soul. Even Aaron doesn't do that in The Forsaken. Everyone has strategies, little outs, things that are theirs and no one else's, that they cling to in the midst of hell. That's how we keep going. For Hot Pie, it's cooking. For Gendry, it's smithing. The lifeblood of labor, the tasks that make them useful to their overseers. Even if the fruits of their labor do not belong to them, the labor itself does, always and forever. Arya, though does not have this sacred apprentice relationship to her work. Not yet, that's going to wait for Bravos. There's no real aesthetic sense to just cleaning up Hall. There's no craft, and she wasn't raised with this. Then again, she hated the activities with which she was raised. So Arya had to find her own unique escape valve. Something that was hers and could not be taken away, like Needle, or Lamy, or Ned. As she thinks to herself, she lost all control over her own life in that village. And it was Jock and Hagar and his three wishes that really changed that. And this is the first time that Jockin comes up in Arya's thoughts in this chapter. She's been trying not to think about him, because Weiss's death, the second wish, left her afraid of her magical mentor. Chiswick, the first wish, that was easy. Anyone can push someone off a wall. But turning Weiss's beloved dog against him? Oh, that must have been sorcery. Now, we know as rereaders, coming back from a dance with dragons, that Jockin probably used basilisk blood to enrage the dog. There was no magic involved. But Jockin does have magic, as we'll see soon. It's not that this is a world in which magic explains everything, nor is it a world in which magic explains nothing. It's both at once, difficult to discern. As such, Arya is increasingly concerned about who and what Jockin really is. He's starting to feel like a figure out of the stories and songs, like one of the grumpkins that Old Nan said would offer wishes to protagonists like her. And, you know, this is a, a great meta moment on George's part. This is something that Stephen Atwell wrote really well about in his essay on this chapter. George is showing us how the process of storytelling and story analysis helps Arya navigate her life. Arya knows that she has to be careful with this third wish. Because in Old Nan's stories, the third and final wish is the most important one, and it's the one in which the Grumpkin, or the Jinn in our world, tries to screw you over and escape. 
Often in A Song of Ice and Fire, the lessons of these songs and stories fail. They were there to blind you to bleak truths, as Sandor says in Sansa's next chapter. I'm honest, it's the world that's awful. But sometimes those songs, those stories, those lessons act as psychic armature, preparing our characters to do battle with a confusing and dishonest world. In this case, Arya knows from the stories that she has to take this wish seriously, use it effectively, but part of her never wants to use it at all. If she uses her last wish, she's out of power. She's back to being a mouse. As long as she could use that wish on anyone, she need not fear anyone in particular. Everyone she encounters is a name she could whisper and erase. But as soon as she picks one person, the second that potential power is actualized, it's gone. And she has no way to keep the fear from returning at that point. And you see her, you know, try and uh, retain that third wish after the slaughter of the Lannister men. She <laughs> goes back and says, okay, now I, now I have my wish. So you were just helping me there. She's kind of, again, trying to kind of, kind of shape the narrative herself there by, by putting it to him that way. And he doesn't really bite. And that's, again, kind of a little hint at her powerlessness when she's trying to, again, shape her own story. And Jockin doesn't quite let it happen. It's her own, uh, her own little gamesmanship that, she, that she's using. And that's, you know, it's, she can bend the rules but not break them. It's that bittersweet in-between status I love so much with these characters. And what's, what Arya is feeling here is a feeling that applies to so many situations in life, not just lethal ones. Anticipation can be a stronger feeling than consummation. The potential for getting what you want can outweigh actually getting it. Time gets away from us. And so looking forward to a future moment can feel more rewarding than getting it. Oh, and then suddenly it's in the past. How to solve this dilemma? How can Arya reconcile her desire to use her power with her fear of what happens when it's gone? As always with the Starks, her oasis is a godswood, a liminal space of privacy and peace. This is where the natural world flourishes, outlasting our petty personal disputes. This is where the noise of the daily grind fades. Even Tyrion finds peace in such a secluded environment at Shay's manse, but for how long? When Sansa visits the godswood in King's Landing, when Bran visits the godswood in Winterfell, when Arya visits the godswood in Harrenhal, it is as if these far-flung siblings are briefly sharing the same space. These woods are broken pieces of home, scattered to the four winds, like the Stark children themselves. They're like video game hubs linking them together. As Arya thinks to herself, she can almost believe she's in the Winterfell godswood. That if she climbs down, she'll find her father waiting for her, like they're all the same wood. We want to cross the gaps between us, breaking down the borders of war and death. We can't, but for a moment we can feel as though we can. Of course, each Stark has a different activity in their respective woods. Bran hunts as summer. Sansa prays and conspires. Arya trains to fight. She lacks a sword, so she has a branch. A child with a wooden sword. Nature itself is our first and last weapon. And thus she maintains the lessons Sirio taught her, weasel preserving a fragile thread to Arya Stark's life. 
Yeah, and I, I love that little touch of her using that wooden sword. And it, it's fun how Arya swats at leaves and names them Cersei, Illenpain, Ser Baron, and the Hound. It's very natural. It's a very natural childlike reaction. And one that I fondly recall doing when I was a young child at the age of 34. Um, I mean, four. Um, but uh, but I, I deeply love the final one about how Joffrey is seen as the broken branch here. I mean, you get it right. This is what, what George is doing. Joffrey is the broken branch of Robert Baratheon. It's where the line of kings ended because Joffrey wasn't actually the son of Robert Baratheon. And, and I just adore how George puts these little touches into the narrative. Anyways, enough of my little observations. Carry on, sir. That's a, no, that's a terrific connection. That's exactly what Joffrey embodies. And now, even though Arya doesn't really know that, she's she's articulating it. And the old gods, too, are part of that old life of Arya Stark, spoken to by the gods' wood. Arya stares down the Harrenhal heart tree with its terrible, snarling face. Arya wonders not whether it hates her, but whether it's suffering. Can gods feel pain, pass away, and die, like Maester Lewin said a couple of brand chapters ago? It speaks to Arya's empathy that she reacts not with fear, but curiosity as to what lurks behind this monstrous face. Shades of Sandor and Sansa there. But it also speaks to Arya's need to know the unknowable. Running around underfoot learning everything. Impatient with sanctity and decorum. She tries to pray silently and politely. Asking for help against Amory. For help getting home. For help never having to feel afraid again. But she can't keep up this silent, polite act for very long. Arya remembers how her father used to pray that way, and how it didn't save him when Joffrey ordered him beheaded, and that makes her angry. And I understand why. Arya feels forsaken, like Aaron, like Job. My dad made a deal with you, and you didn't hold up your end of the bargain. So either you're evil, or you're powerless. You know, Epicurus's classic questions about God, if you know... If he, if he's able and willing to stop evil, then where does evil come from? And if he's one of the other combinations of able and willing, why do we think of him as God? Arya scorns the world of gods and sorcery, saying it can't help her. And right then, Jochen emerges, as if born out of fog and mist to castigate her. Gods are not mocked, girl, says Jochen Hagar. They're not here to help you, and they will happily hurt you if you defy them. Rethink your relationship to them. And he would know, because Jochen functions like a god. He comes in response to Arya speaking to the heart tree. He came in response to her kill list, whispered at night like a prayer. He speaks, or so he says, on behalf of the gods. And the gods' wood is his little pocket universe, like the steamy bathhouse in Arya 8. Harrenhal is the magical world nestled inside the political world. Jochen allows Arya to engage with multiple kinds of power hands-on, which is exhilarating but also terrifying. It's a sword without a hilt, no safe way to wield it. Arya is worried that that sword is about to cut her. Gods are not mocked, and Grumpkins can't be trusted. How should she handle her third wish? Before she answers that question, she has some questions of her own, thank you. What's your deal, Jochen? How did you know I was here? Are Rorge and Biter demons you summoned up from hell? Is Jochen Hagar even your true name? Jochen doesn't even bother with most of these questions. A man sees and hears and knows. And that's all you're going to get, Job. Quit bothering God. The only question Jochen cares about 
is the one about his name. And as with many confrontations with Faith, as with Catelyn in the Stormlands, he turns it back on her. I have many names, sure. And so do you, Weasel, Ari, Arya. Mm, it's one of those like kind of like uh, moments in the narrative that kind of be what? Jacken knows that Arya is Arya. That's whoa, whoa. And I, but I do think the questions that Arya poses are good ones, and I really like Jacken's non-responses. They do remind me of what God is doing in the Book of Job, as you were pointing out. Arya's picking up that there is something unnaturally occurring in this castle, and that Jack and Agar is behind a lot of it. And Jack and Nagar, like I was saying before, turns the creep factor up to 11 when he reveals that he knows what Arya's true name is. And kind of as a side note, I was kind of like thinking through how Jacken could have figured this out. And I wonder whether Jacken might have been taking a little listen when Arya was whispering her prayers and kind of put it all together. Or maybe there was some other magic involved we'll find up, find out about in The Winds of Winter when in Arya's apparently four dozen chapters that are set in Bravos that George is writing. Regardless, Rorge and Biter were not magicked up by Jacken. We, we talked about this in a previous Arya chapter, but George R. R. Martin did have a backstory in mind for, for Rorge and Biter, where Rorge was a bar owner in Fleet Bottom who found an orphan named Biter, and Rorge put Biter into the fighting pits to fight wild animals for sport. Lovely story. So these guys aren't demons. They're more, as John puts it about Ramsay, beasts in human flesh, made only worse by the magic surrounding them at Hall. This is a, a, a turn on George's part that I've noticed that proximity to magic makes people more deathly, more disconnected from life, and more like horrific and kind of grotesque in their... In their uh, <laughs> grotesque in, in, in their emanations in life. And we're going to encounter a version of this in three weeks' time when we meet the Undying in, in Karth, and when we encounter Bloodraven the Thread Crow, of course, when we'll see a version of this in A Dance with Dragons. And with Arya, we start to see George doing the shaping work for her journey to Bravos and her half-assed attempt to join a death cult named the Faceless Men and becoming no one while taking on new names and identities. We see the seeds here of that arc in A Clash of Kings that Jack and helpfully summarizes. Weasel? Ari? Arya. In Feast, Dance, and Winds, it's Cat of the Canals, Blind Beth, the Ugly Little Girl, Mercy, and then at some point, it's going to be Arya of House Stark yet again. We all wear these masks. It's just a question of why, where, when, how effectively. Who we are is a question with no permanent answer. Jokin is an exaggeration of the state of alienation from the self a metaphor for losing one's identity as you grow up in a world at war. The man himself is already gone. There's no one underneath all these masks. Arya is the one whose identity is still, you know, potential. It's still really at stake. So he turns all these questions back on her. The question isn't who I am, little spunky fantasy protagonist. It's who you are. Because this is your hero's journey, and I am but your magical mentor. Names have power, binding words sinking into the soul. Arya responds to her name being spoken aloud by retreating to the heart tree behind her. The very gods she just mocked are still her source of strength when faced with devastating self-recognition, alienation from her own face in the mirror. But there's a flip side to Jokin knowing her true name. Ah, that means... He knows her true cause. Maybe the gods have sent him. Again, as a magical mentor, Jokin is linked, like Jojen and Melisandre, to divine will. Alas, the gods do not directly answer prayers, and Jokin has not come to help Arya. Not exactly. He has come to fulfill this sacred deal that they made. He won't help her free the Northmen any more than Gendry, but for different reasons. 
Gendry wants to stay beneath the war. Jockin hovers above it. Gendry will work for anyone. Jockin works for no one. Is no one. You saved three lives. So you owe three deaths to bring the world back to balance. The absolute zero of the gods. This is not about the Stark cause. Jockin doesn't care about that any more than Melisandre actually cares about the Iron Throne. I'm not your political mentor. I'm your magical one. I'm the Jojen of this storyline, not Maester Lewin. The war, we keep being told, is what the story is about, doesn't actually mean anything to these characters, or at least not what it means to Arya. She has to juggle all these priorities that keep complicating her easy narrative, which is all part of the process of growing up. Arya considers for a moment. And then springs a trap on Jockin that is so beautifully constructed that I would say it's maybe her most clever moment as a character. You can kill anyone, she asks. Any powerful person? And Jockin eagerly agrees, thinking he's about to be sent to kill Joffrey. He swears it by every god, old and new, ice and fire, the world in his hands, and therefore Arya's. But then Arya makes her move. The powerful person I want you to kill is Jockin Hagar. I want you to kill yourself. Arya has mastered her own master. Jockin thought Arya was putting him up against phys- uh, physical political power, drawing from the lesson she learned with Weiss's death. Oh, I gotta go after someone higher on the ladder this time. Arya, however, has actually dodged right around that insight to a more useful one in the moment. What happens if I force this nowhere man to look in the mirror and implicate himself. That is the one life Jockin really doesn't want to take. And yet he is hoisted on his own petard, having already promised he could and would do it. Arya learned the lessons from old Nan stories, combining them with the lessons Gendry wanted her to learn from Gregor's ultraviolence. Her literary analysis has proved the key to mastering her power dynamics. Instead of losing herself in the possibilities and pitfalls of sorcerer's power, she has turned sorcerer's power against itself, and so taken control of it. It's one hell of a move, and you can tell by the way Jockin briefly smiles that he's impressed by it, even as it makes a ton of extra work for him. He tries to wiggle out of it by saying that without him, Arya would feel isolated and friendless. We were talking about that earlier in the chapter. But that was inevitable as soon as she used her third wish, no matter who she used it on. She would always go back to feeling like a mouse. So she wants to use the third wish to actually change that feeling. She threatens his life in order to get him to agree to her unorthodox use of the third wish. Mm, And we'll have to wait for next week to find out what happens with that third wish, right? But I, I did want to talk about one thing that, that kind of struck me in this chapter and in rereading all of Arya's chapters coming up to this point. And that's how Arya's thoughts about Hall are all sourced to her own observations in old Nan's stories. Arya is observant, taking the lessons that Ciro Pharrell taught her to look with your eyes to figure out so much about this castle. The sounds the wind makes, Arya knows that. How your feet sound when they patter against the ground, Arya knows that too. Which doors are guarded and who might ask questions if she passed by, Arya knows that. Much of this observation on Arya's part is her close analysis on how she can escape the castle, looking for win- for weaknesses and potential escape routes out of the castle. Factor in Old Nan, we see the sordid history of Hall's more ancient memory, stories of Heron the Black, Aegon the Conqueror, ghosts, etc. 
but now that Arya is in the haunted castle, she's not afraid of the castle or the ghosts in it. She's seen far worse things done by men than done by spooks, so she's not scared of the haunted castle anymore. There is, though, a significant omission in what Arya knows about Harrenhal. Ned. We don't have Arya recalling a time when Ned told her about, oh, I don't know, say the tourney of Harrenhal, that formative moment in Ned Stark's early life. Seemingly, Ned so tightly guarded his secrets that he only recalled it in his fever dream in his final Game of Thrones chapter, and seemingly never spoke of it to his children. We see some evidence of this in A Storm of Swords when Jojen twice asked Bran if Ned had ever told him the story of Harrenhal, and Bran says, no, old Nan told the stories. His dad never spoke of such things. Here in Arya's chapters, it's all omission. Arya never once thinks of a story Ned told her about Harrenhal, despite it being a formative experience in Ned's life. And this connects, of course, with R plus L equals J and how Ned tried to save John's life by rarely speaking of the past and never speaking of the and really never speaking in any specificity of the past at all. As Catelyn says in Catelyn Six, Ned was gone now, and his loves and his secrets had all died with him. Mm, that's great. Just like how Arya thinks she can climb down the tree and find Ned waiting there, you know, ready to smile and hug her and take her in and tell her everything. But he's not there, and he told her everything he was gonna. I'm sure there's much more he wanted to say to her and John. But just like how, like a uh, like with Rhaegar before the battle, talking to Jaime, that's just it's a road not taken. And what good does it do to speak of it? So taking us uh, to foreshadowing and groundwork, only one, uh, really one element we're going to talk about here. There's a bunch more to be talking about in part two of this chapter. Uh, Arya hiding her sword is something that's going to happen again in A Feast for Crows with her literal sword when Arya hides needle instead of throwing it into the Bravosi Harbor. So this is, you know, Arya hiding her her tomboyish side, her weapons, her violence, her connection to home. It's, you know, everything she has to keep away and keep hidden. And it's a great way that, that George kind of like builds the storyline that Arya is like hiding her identity, so to speak, in the sword. And of course, Needle is going to represent um, so much to Arya, which of course is not going to be violence and things like that and revenge, as as certain showrunners had said. In season six, it actually speaks more to her identity as a Stark and what it actually means uh, for her to be a Stark and to have, have a brother in the form of, of Jon Snow. So this is a good touch. Again, it's something that George is going to revisit in A Feast for Crows. And I think it does speak in A Feast for Crows toward that eventual journey of Arya back from Bravos to Westeros. Well said, sir. So taking us into our uh, discussion portion for the episode, you know, uh, something that's kind of interesting that, that happens here with Arya's relationship to Jock, and we'll be talking more about it specifically next week, how it ends, but unlike a character like Bran or Daenerys, Arya's connection to magic seems briefly severed at the end of this book and it's like oh what's you know brand still going with jojen you know to north danny still got the dragons around her a bunch of prophecies but what's Arya's relationship to magic look like and it's it's kind of more fragmented and not as linear and clear as certain other characters and so i wanted to talk a little bit about that and to, to turn it over to our guest to talk about what, what what do you think about Arya's relationship to magic yeah, I love it. You know, she's not out here uh, birthing dragons or or herself, you know, resurrecting the dead. Um, but she's she's bearing witness to it. She's she's close enough to reach out and touch it. Tell these revenants and shapeshifters, and she she absorbs it uh, instead of uh, rejecting it like Tyrion does with uh, Alistair Thorne. You know, he just he kind of doesn't want to think about it, uh, and so he just you know, even though there's other things going on with the character work there, he's just he doesn't want to confront it in his own mind. And, and Arya really 
open she's open to it and uh you know her her concept of it being something that she can, um not just stories and legends uh, something you can actually reach out and touch like i said uh you can really see the path that leads her to bravos and back uh you know, explicitly so when, when jock and hands her the the golden ticket there in the form of the coin and there's jock and hagar himself uh jock and jack and jacken uh he's a shapeshifter speaker of riddles assassin man of mystery names have no meaning and be a possible meaning to him he and Arya can shed names as easily as someone changes their socks and he can do it but when Arya names him uh in that in that third death is his death is clearly and instantly inevitable from her lips to the god of death's ears he's she's shook until he's able to you know barely negotiate his way out of it. Uh, not that she probably would have really pulled the trigger on that anyway, but you can see the relief, you know, in him. And and the reason he's so afraid, the reason they would have had to go through it, if she really said it, the thing that binds the naming to the foregone death is, is all hidden in the mystery of his training and his backstory. And it plants the seed of curiosity in in the reader and, and in Arya, and it goes both ways. You know, you really see it. What, what is this? this magic that he's tuned into and i just love that there's just little hints of it you're not really again fully facing it it's just it's something you can just kind of see kind of reach out and touch you're in proximity to it he shows her that other way to channel fear and anger and and her developing relationship with death uh and you know just ha- hanging on to that that control over her life and as you're saying it's so it's so caught up in death and devotion you know, even more than direct displays of supernatural power, because Jockin changing his face does have a huge impact on Arya, obviously. But the the deeper currents that stick with her, as you say, is this sense of, wow, Jockin really would have gone through with it. And what does that say about him? And where is he from? And what kind of man is he? And what kind of power makes someone like that? And that, I think, that haunts Arya, and that curiosity drives her on, you know, as much as the, 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 the power itself, as much as the spells themselves, it's that, that, that deeper relationship to death and violence that I think you can see connecting throughout her story. And I think that's what makes it kind of linear. It feels like a linear on that theme, even though magic itself keeps jumping in and out of Arya's story. Yeah, for sure. And, uh, you know, I think that's, that's really well put. And I think that when she, when she sees him change his face, uh, you know, I think that kind of, foreshadows some of the stuff with the brotherhood you know there's there's that kind of anti a little bit with Beric the 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 resurrection and and again uh the relationship to her father and and how she talks to um to Thoros about that you know could you bring back a man with no head you know like oh man and (laughs) fucking it, it that stings and and her relationship with Ned is one of those things that um that I love most about her character and, and that's just always in there. Um, and, and the part of him that carries on in her, uh, and the part of, uh, you know, Liana as well. Uh, there's the whole Stark heritage that just never goes away and that, you know, is going to bring her back full circle to Westeros eventually. Uh, and, and in that vein, you know, I see her ongoing focus on her kill list, uh, somewhat analogous to Lady Stoneheart's quest for vengeance. Uh, and, you know, whether that leads to an encounter between the two uh, or only serves to draw certain parallels as, uh, you know, I think kind of remains to be seen. Uh, but in the world of Westeros, there's that type of gratification that goes kind of beyond stealing Sir Amory's treats. She, she yearns desperately for power and agency. Chapter after chapter after chapter, chapter she's reminded that she has none to speak of. 
as you laid out so succinctly. Jockin gives her an indirect taste of that power, right? Explicitly laying the responsibility for the slaughter at Arya's feet. So like the, the pathway to magic, that pathway to death and, and extreme violence is there, you know? And in the show, we see her uh, avenge the Red Wedding. And again, I think, you know, Lady Stoneheart will, will take some of that uh, off of her plate as far as like the show and book translation. Um, but he lays that right at her feet and gives her her death mantra in Valar Margulis. The distance between spitting in or stealing someone's food and then being directly implicated in all these brutal murders is pretty vast. We see the long-term foundation of the bridge across that divide being built right here in this chapter. If you follow that far enough, you arrive at the question, can revenge, omerta, rowenge, fill the hole in Arya's heart? And I think that's like one of the things that we talk about for, for Arya's story and that and, – and this is this is the point where I think the show kind of went a little astray when we get to the later seasons of the show because they ended up making Arya into kind of this revenge-minded character that pursues it all the way to the point of events at the end of season seven in Winterfell – which don't make a lot of uh, which don't make a lot of character and plot sense for Arya because I think Arya's story in ultimately is a story that's supposed to be against revenge, and I do think the idea of her leaving Bravos eventually at some point in the storyline is supposed to be not her rejection of magic necessarily, but her rejection of that mantra of giving in to death, of giving in to this this death cult. I, I do think she will take the powers that she learns from the faceless men and that she has been learning throughout her arc and bring it forward. But it has to be in the context of her almost like rejecting like the, the call, so to speak in the, in the anti-heroes journey, so, so to speak as well for, for, for her as a character, she has to move beyond this revenge fantasy. And I think at the very least, Season 8 did a good job with Arya moving beyond that point of her story, even if she had to literally be kicked down the stairs, so to speak, by Sandra Clegane going up the Red Keep in order to avoid uh, participating in some sort of murder of, of Cersei Lannister. And then from there on, she then journeys into exploration, which I think is a natural part of Arya's storyline, something we see here where she is consistently exploring places in Harrenhal, the godswood, knowing everything about that. I think that is a far healthier uh, vantage point for Arya to journey forward in her arc. And I think abandoning the death cult is a significant step in that journey. Something that we are likely going to see at least by the end of the Winds of Winter. Yeah. I'm, uh, I'm admittedly not as tuned into all the kind of the timelines and the intersections and theories, you know, there's her, her end game and where she goes. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, still that, that her and, and Lady Stoneheart can intersect in a really bittersweet and poignant way and kind of reconcile all these different uh, themes that their characters carry with them in uh, revenge and catharsis and, and guilt and just the, the family relationships and things like that. Um, and, you know, I mean, the, it could be just thematic character work for sure, but I, th I think it foreshadows their reunion. Uh, and, you know... I don't really see Arya being the one to kind of take on the end of the, the magic, you know, as we see in the show where she really, um, you know, kills the Night King and kills all the, all the others and, and everything's hunky dory. Like that's, that's not likely her, her fate in the book. Right. So uh, the wandering, yes, but you know, what, what's that kind of that climax 
that that gets brought back to that's like the real character beat and you know ned's not around and i think it for me it just keeps leading back to stoneheart uh and you know again kind of loops in the whole brotherhood without banners thing which again is just complete my shit so uh you know having to face possible as any other and for Arya, and what I love <laughs> about this chapter is the possibilities that it opens up for her. Tragic, hopeful, nihilistic, everything in between. Like this chapter, just like you know, it, you know essentially she's about to she's about to kind of go on that journey, really. And uh, here's the road. Follow it, right? Again, kind of back to the Wizard of Oz semi metaphor I made earlier. I think Wizard of Oz holds up for this, and that 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 same sense of a a weird dreamscape in Heron Hall, but also those those choices, those big choices that so many fairy tales and coming of age stories come down to. And I think you you hit the nail on the head, Zach, that you could you could draw an optimistic or a pessimistic look from this chapter, and it's it's really both captured so well. And there's such artistry in that, and I think you can see that across Arya's relationship to magic. Absolutely. And uh, yeah, it's a, it's a great way to kind of close out this this chapter, this first part of this uh, chapter on A Clash of Kings, Aria 9. So as always, thank you so much to everyone for listening. For those of you who are sticking around for our live cast, we will chat and answer some questions. We'll all come off mute for that portion of it. I know some folks have been having some issues with the uh, the audio and video kind of not syncing. And I think it will all be clear up when we come off of mute for, for the Q&A portion of it. And thank you so much to Jack. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for Zach for joining us. And where can people find you online and all the things that you do, sir? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not uh, all up in theories and the discussions, like I said, but I'm on Twitter at WolfmanZach underscore. It's a lot of baseball and uh, <laughs> politics uh, on Instagram at WolfmanZach. And if you can find me on Reddit, <laughs> you win a prize. Well, I'm going to have to be pursuing that prize from here on out because I am on Reddit, so to speak. If you have the chance, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Podbean, Spotify, anywhere and everywhere where you find our podcasts. You can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash notacastasoiaf. You can follow us on Twitter at notacastasoiaf or shoot us an email at notacastasoiaf at gmail.com. You can find me at Quentin on Twitter or at poorquentin.com. And you can find me at Brennan Beavish on Twitter, Brennan Beavish on Reddit, and my website is warsandpoliticsviceandfire.wordpress.com. We want to shout out and thank our High Lords and Ladies on Patreon, Red Ralu himself, who has renounced his allegiance to the Squishers, Lady of a Thousand Words, Septon Eastwood of Introvert Isle, Septon Maribald, the Shoeless Sage, Sister Winter, Lady of the Wolfswood, Nessie the Elusive, Warden of the Neck, Defender of the North and Keeper of Secrets, Sandy the Dragon, Blood of Queen Daenerys and Lady of Jameson, Lady Britt, Bastard Mistress of Harrenhal, Sir Thomas the Raven Knight, Lord of Blackwood, Lady Dillsdale, the Star Spear of Crescent Hill, Sir Way of Course, Matt, Warden of the Sanguine Shore, Lord Mark Connington, Heir to Griffin's Roost, Lord Sam Kay, Sir Michael Mertens, Wisdom Benjicott, Alchemist of Sets and Quanta, Mage of the Arts of Bull and De Morgan, Tibbs the Great of House Catnapping, Lord J. Manderley, Baker of the Fray Pies, Septon Merrifull Head of Hair, Lady Silverwing, Joe Snow, King of the Metro North and Protector of the Tri-State, Caboth the Unfrozen, Lord of the Bricks and Castle Crimson Light, Sir Keith of House Corbray, Wilder of Lady Forlorn, Lord Andrew, Warden of the Dubai Sands, Ryan Noy, Forger of the Mighty Hammer and Keeper of the King's Anvil, Lord Young of the Ghostwoods, Lady Mira Reed, Wilder of Dark Sister, Slayer of Tinfoil, Lady of Rainy Afternoons, Sir Will of the Anarcho-Syndicalist Commune, and our newest High Lord, Lord Clay. So thank you so much to all our High Lords and Ladies, and welcome to Lord Clay. Absolutely. Thank you all so very much for your support, and welcome to Lord Clay. So, join us next week for part two of The Clash of Kings, Arya 9, in which Arya Stark puts her third wish into practice, for better. 
and for a lot of fucking worse. Man, the end of this chapter, and especially Aria 10, is especially brutal in the overall system that is the Song of Ice and Fire. Yeah, like we were saying, there's, there's bittersweet conclusions to be drawn from this chapter in isolation. When you get to Aria 10, as we will eventually, yeah, a lot of them start to become bitter, and that's going to ramp up in the second half, and we can't wait to have Zach back with us next week. Absolutely. So thank you so much for listening. Thank you all for watching us. We'll see you guys next week for Clash of Kings Aria 9 Part 2.